Please take your seats, and as you do, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks comfort to your people. We thank you that you spoke to Isaiah, that word of comfort, that you would send uh, the one who would come, the one who your people have been waiting for, that John the Baptist would come and uh, announce, prepare the way for the Lord, and you would come to comfort your people. And Lord, as we look back today on, on that through John's gospel, through that window into your great plan of salvation, we pray that you'd speak to us, show us, uh, show us who you are. Help us to know you better. Help us to know to your plans for us as well, better, as we look at your word together this morning. And as we wait on you, as we look to you, we pray that you would renew our strength and our hope. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone, and uh, my name is Dan, as Lou said. Uh, It's good to to welcome you here, and we're carrying on a series in John's Gospel. Uh, John is one of the eyewitness biographies of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection in the New Testament part of the Bible. And we're going through a series at the moment in John. Uh, We're into chapter 4 now, uh, and verses 43 to 54 this morning, uh, which hopefully is going to, yeah, we go on the screen behind me. And uh, I want to begin with a question, or two questions, really. What kind of faith have you got? What kind of faith have you got? And what kind of faith does Jesus look for? You might be sat here thinking, well, I've got no kind of faith. And that's fine. Uh, We'll kind of think through that in a bit. Maybe you're thinking, yeah, I, I am trusting in Jesus, but what kind of faith have you got? And what kind of faith does Jesus look for? They're two key questions. And before we start thinking, yeah, yeah, I've heard it all before, Be careful not to miss an important warning from Jesus this morning. You see, it's entirely possible to have a a kind of imposter faith. A kind of imposter faith. Such a person might be convinced that they have faith, but their faith turns out to be something other than the kind of faith Jesus is looking for. And uh, so let's kind of approach this seriously and and hear what he has to say this morning. And we're going to see, first of all, in this passage... The reception that Jesus should have received. Uh, and I'm going to start reading from the end of last week's passage, chapter, 30, uh, chapter 4, verse 39. And it's on page 1067 in the church Bibles if you want to follow. John chapter 4, verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him, Jesus that is, because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I've ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. After the two days, he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned water into wine, and there was a certain royal official whose son lay ill at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. 
Most of us have probably forgotten chapter 4, verse 3 by now. That was weeks ago, wasn't it? The beginning of chapter 4. But we learned there that Jesus had set out on a journey. Chapter 4, verse 3 says, So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Uh, in chapter 3, Jesus was still in Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem down at the kind of bottom here. It's going to be the first dot that comes up. There we go. Um, you can't see that though, can you? Jerusalem's sort of down the bottom here somewhere. Uh, there. And uh, Jesus was there in chapter 3. There He was there at the end of chapter 2. That's where Nicodemus came to him. Uh, Jerusalem was in Judea in the south. On his way to Galilee, Jesus stopped in Sychar in Samaria, um, kind of around... Oops, sorry, I'm pressing the wrong button. <laughs> um, around here. And uh, that's where he met the woman at the well. That's the town where he just stayed for two days. And then we've just read he reaches Galilee in the north. I don't know how far I've got. There we go, there's Galilee. And uh, you can see those kind of three red dots there. So this one's Nazareth, Jesus' hometown. This is Cana. And this is Capernaum, where the royal official's son was. And uh, as John notes, although Galilee was Jesus' homeland... Uh, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his home country. A prophet has no honor in his home country. You can read examples of Jesus pointing this out in Matthew and Luke's Gospels, where he's teaching in his hometown of Nazareth. But what might seem odd at first reading here is what John says next. The NIV uh, misses out a word here, presumably because it doesn't seem to make sense at first. John writes, Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. And then it should say, therefore, or so, when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, verse 45. That's a bit odd, isn't it? You'd expect to read, now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet had no honor in his own country, therefore, when he arrived in Galilee, his own country, they ignored him, or they dismissed him. That's what you might expect to read. But John says they welcomed him. And the next half of verse 45 helps us to understand what kind of welcome they gave him. When he arrived in Galilee, verse 45, the Galileans welcomed him. They they had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. Now John would expect his readers to recall the events of chapter 2, as in fact we'll see chapter 2 is kind of closely linked to to what follows here in chapter 4. But if you flick back a couple of pages with me and and read from verse 13 of chapter 2, page 1065, under the heading, Jesus clears the temple courts. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. 
He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Now these Galileans in chapter 4 are among those in Jerusalem who saw the signs that Jesus performed there. These Galileans were among those who supposedly believed in his name. And yet Jesus implies that their faith was not genuine. It was somehow counterfeit, not the real thing. He knew their hearts, and he did not entrust himself to them. These Galileans were now in chapter 4, the subjects of Jesus' rebuke, along with the royal official, unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus said, Jesus told him, you will not believe. Their belief, it turns out, was superficial belief, not genuine belief. We'll think more of that in the moment, but more about that in a moment. But first of all, let's observe the way this welcome they gave Jesus, this welcome that was somehow less than warm-hearted, somehow less than fully embracing him. They held him at some distance rather than fully embracing him. They held back some of the honor that he should have been due. Historical reality is that that Jesus was a Jewish man from the Jewish nation, and yet the general sentiment of the Jewish people was not to receive him, but to reject him. As we've already uh, observed in chapter 1, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And there appears to be something of this sentiment here too in chapter 4. But it's interesting that John has just included Jesus' encounter with the woman from Samaria and the people from her town. Go back before that, who was Jesus speaking to last? A skeptical religious leader, Nicodemus. At least least he was inquiring. Go back before Nicodemus, who was Jesus speaking to? All these Jewish people in in Jerusalem, sorry, who he didn't entrust himself to. And now in chapter 4, he's returning to his own people. But they welcomed him at a kind of superficial level, lacking honor. And perhaps John intends us to notice the contrast between the reception that Jesus receives from his own people and the reception which Jesus receives from the outsiders, the unlikely people of Samaria. As we saw last week, they welcomed Jesus into their town, into their lives, into their hearts. They received him as the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of the world. So it's a historical reality that that Jesus' own people failed to give him the reception that he should have received from them. Now, is there a challenge for us this morning in this? I'm not talking about whether any of us are biologically descended from Abraham or Israel, the people of Israel, and therefore we um, uh, we ought to receive Jesus as one of our own biologically. I'm not talking about that. But what I'm asking is this. Those of us who claim to follow Jesus, who claim to be his disciples, who say we're true Christians, are we those who, in a a different sense of Jesus' own people, are we in any way guilty of failing to receive Jesus among us as his own people were historically? On the one hand, this feels like a stupid question to ask. You're all sat there thinking, what an idiot. Of course we receive Jesus and welcome him truly. Of course we accept him and submit ourselves to learn from him. Isn't that what following him as a disciple is all about? And yet I fear it's not such a stupid question at all. I fear it's possible for us, even us who've received Jesus as our saviour, even us who say we follow him as our Lord, even us, it's possible that we've moved on and, and reached a point where we don't receive Jesus anymore. We wouldn't say that, of course, but what about when we're not comfortable with the way he might be working among us? 
What about the people he's reaching? We thought last week about the outsiders, the unlikely people, the Samaritans. Are we ever not receiving Jesus in the way he wants to work through us? Or challenges he maybe calls us to in our lives? Let's think back to last week and the readiness of the Samaritan woman to go back and tell her town about Jesus. This, a woman who'd previously hidden uh, and avoided people in shame. And yet she readily goes back and says, come and see this man. Perhaps some of us need to unlearn some of our reserve, or whatever it is that holds us back from this wholehearted embracing of Jesus and his work among us. May our Lord and Saviour Jesus have the warmest and most hearty welcome in my life, in my heart. May I receive him as he deserves to be received, and may he receive the reception due to him among us as a church together. Just as an aside before we move on, someone reflected at Heartbeat on Thursday night how Jesus reflected a hospitality of time. He'd uh, interrupted his planned journey to Galilee to spend two days with the Samaritans, presumably giving his time to disciple them. And uh, Harold was asking the question, I think I got your question right, that as we, as we look to be involved in, rece- in reaping this harvest, uh, do we need to increase our hospitality of time? in the way that Jesus was willing to spend these two days with the Samaritans discipling them? Do we need to think about how we're being generous with our time with the people who we're seeking to disciple? Anyway, this is the reception Jesus should have received, but let's uh, move on to think about the faith Jesus doesn't want you to have. The faith Jesus doesn't want you to have. Let's pick up our passage again in verse 46 of John 4. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he turned water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay ill at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, Yesterday, at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. I think what's going on here, the kind of first instance, this guy has a, this kind of a bit of this bogus belief, a bit of this false faith. Yes, he, he took Jesus at his word, or, or in a sense even believed. He, he went off. And, and yet that kind of faith brought out the response from Jesus, unless you people see signs and wonders, you're not going to believe. It seems he didn't truly believe until verse 53, uh, where it says, so he and his whole household believed. It's possible to believe that Jesus miraculously heals people and yet still lack the kind of faith that Jesus is looking for. It's interesting that the phrase signs and wonders occurs elsewhere in the New Testament, in the Gospels, sorry, only when Jesus is warning that false messiahs and false prophets will perform great signs and wonders in an attempt to deceive even God's chosen people. Don't get me wrong, I'm not dismissing miracles. After all, Jesus did perform many signs. John says that, and then John tells us that he recorded them for a reason. Jesus spoke of his works, testifying to who he was. 
That surely includes his miraculous signs. And God confirmed the message about Jesus through the apostles by performing signs and wonders recorded in Acts. I'm not saying God doesn't work miracles or that he never heals people. The warning, though, is not to be impressed by the signs alone. False messiahs and false prophets can and will perform impressive miracles. Jesus does not want us to be swayed by impressive miracles alone, even impressive miracles that he himself performs. Jesus rather wants our faith to be firmly rooted in him. Our focus needs to go beyond the signs to see the one to whom they point. Perhaps it will be helpful to reflect on Leicester City Football Club. I know very little about football. I'm not ashamed of that. But even I am aware that Leicester are now the Premier League champions. I believe it's the Barclays Premier League, if I got that right. Anyway, um, and they've kind of won this unexpected victory in the Premier League. And it's entirely possible, isn't it, that Leicester City will have gained some new fans in these last couple of weeks. And it's surely possible that some of those fans have just become so-called fans because they're impressed that Leicester City won the Premier League. They don't actually care about Leicester City. They're not actually that interested in the progress of the club. Next season, they'll probably shift their allegiance to whoever will win then. But for now, they identify themselves as fans of Leicester City. They claim to support Leicester City. Now, I realise I'm speculating that such people exist, but indulge me that they do. Uh, Imagine they do. Now, compare these these so-called fans with the woman who was born and raised in Leicester, who loved football from an early age, as early as she can remember, who played in the school teams right the way through, who, uh, who followed every high and every low of Leicester City all her childhood and her adult life. She's as loyal as, she, as they get. She chants, come on, the foxes, or, or whatever they chant. I think they're called the foxes. Uh, whether they win or lose... She was at all those despairing matches that earned them the 5,000 to 1 odds that there's no way they're going to win the league. Compare her devotion and even trust. Maybe we could say faith. Compare her faith in Leicester City with that of someone who hadn't heard of them a few weeks ago but now claims to support them because they're impressed by their Premier League victory. Actually, when I was looking for this photo, I did find a photo of a poster someone had made that said, my faith and my hope is Leicester City. Compare that kind of faith with the faith of the person who's just recently gone after them because of their impressive victory. See, Jesus doesn't want the kind of faith that's just after these impressive signs, that's just kind of impressed by his power, by his works. Jesus doesn't even want us just to believe the correct things about who he is. James 2 says that even the demons believe in that sense, in the sense of accepting truth about who God is. That's not the kind of faith Jesus is looking for. Rather, Jesus is looking for the kind of faith which, yes, acknowledges who he is, believes the truth about who he is, agrees with the truthfulness of his claims about who he is and and what he does, who believes also in his desire and his ability to save and to rescue us. As well as believing all those things, a faith that actually trusts in him personally, completely, that rests in him, that relies on him for our personal salvation. We rely on his character, we rely on his power, we rely on his heart towards us to bless us and to save us.
And this kind of faith results in allegiance to Jesus. We want to follow him. We want to learn from him. We want to submit our lives to him. If you're unsettled by this challenge this morning, then please, don't take, then please do take that as a good thing. Jesus doesn't give us warnings like this to spiritually paralyze us. He gives us warnings to move us towards healthy faith in him. So the point of all this isn't to leave you wondering as you go out today, I'm not sure if my faith is good enough. That's not the point. If you're unsettled by what Jesus says, then talk to someone, talk to Lou, talk to me, talk to your home group leader, or come and uh, speak to the prayer team later on in the gathering. The goal is to, is to calibrate our faith correctly on Jesus. It's good that the guitars are, are in tune this morning. This is kind of to tune our faith correctly on Jesus in the way uh, that, um, that he wants it to be. I think the guitars were in tune. Sounded all right. Anyway, uh, so that's the faith Jesus doesn't want us to have. Finally, let's look at the life Jesus wants to give you. Verses 46 to 54. So let's focus on the sign itself. Uh, take a look again. Um, actually, we won't take a look again because we're a short time this morning. Um, but uh, we'll focus on the sign again. And if you kind of scan through verses 49 to 54, you see that it's a sign about life. A sign about Jesus giving life. Have a look at the repetition in verse 50. Your son will live. Verse 51. His boy was living. Verse 53. Your son will live. The healing highlights Jesus' power to give life, whether physical or eternal life. As we saw a few weeks ago now in chapter 3, verses 15 to 16, says the Son of Man, that's Jesus, must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So here in this sign, Jesus is highlighting his power and his purpose, his desire to give life. And this is the theme of the chapters that follow. We see in verse 21 of chapter 5, for example, Jesus saying, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. We see in chapter 6, with a story that so many of us are familiar with, the story of Jesus feeding 5,000 men and women and children, so perhaps 20,000 people in all, and uh, with just five small loaves and, and two small fish, we see this is a sign all about what? Jesus giving life. In fact, the account in chapter 6 has, has links with the things we're looking at today. Uh, there also, Jesus encounters people who just want the impressive miracles, And there also Jesus points them beyond the miracles to himself. The one who, in his words, gives life to the world. And so we could go on and trace this theme of life through John's gospel. And as we've noted before in this series, this is the reason John tells us why he wrote this book. In chapter 20, he says, verse 13 and 31, Jesus performed many signs, many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is the reason John writes this book, so that we might know that life in Jesus. Well, what is this life? How can we describe it? Well, first of all, it's life in contrast to death. Remember chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It's life in contrast to death. 
Secondly, it's life in all its fullness. John 10 verse 10, Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. It's a fullness of life. It's not a boring life that Jesus comes to give. He doesn't come to restrict and to make our lives dull. Jesus comes to give us the fullness of life. Thirdly, it's the life of a child. Life enjoyed in relationship with God as his child and with Jesus the son as his brother. In chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus says, Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, speaking to his father, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. It's the life of being a child of God. Fourthly, it's life from the Holy Spirit, as we saw in chapter 4, verse 14. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. As God gives his spirit to us, we're able to experience this fullness of life. And as he pours the spirit of his son into our hearts, we cry, Abba, Father. It's the life given by the spirit. And fifthly, it's the life of the age to come. In fact, the word that's translated eternal life uh, could be more literally translated life of the age to come. Eternal life is resurrection life. Although our experiences of it begins now, it's something we can enjoy now before the end. It's really and fully the life of the resurrection when Jesus returns and raises all his people to be with him. In chapter 11, Verse 25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Only in God's Son, the Son, do we have this life. Chapter 3, verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. So that's a bit about the sign and what it points to. Now, let me tell you a little thing about signs. Uh, The first time that I drove, I think it was the first time I drove abroad, uh, I was driving through uh, French-speaking Switzerland, and uh, I saw lots of signs to this place. And uh, I thought, wow, what a big town Sortie is. As I drove along, I kept seeing more and more signs to Sortie. And I thought, this place is huge. I didn't know there were such big places in Switzerland or anywhere. And then uh, we entered into German-speaking Switzerland and started seeing signs to another place called Ausgang. And then I twigged that maybe uh, this sign was actually pointing us to the exit. When you know uh, what a, this is a very tenuous link. When you know what a sign is, is pointing you to, when you know where a sign is pointing, it, it's wise to kind of follow that sign. And, and here we've seen this sign is pointing that Jesus is the one who can give us life this eternal life, this life in contrast to death, the life of the Spirit, the life that's fullness of life, the life that goes on forever. Yes, we begin to enjoy it now. Only Jesus can give that life. He's the one who gives it to those who truly believe in him. And so as we see that sign, let's not miss the way it's pointing. As we finish, there's one other thing going on here in these verses. Just as John recalls in chapter 2, uh, the eclipsing of Jesus eclipsing the, the old purification rites, revealing something of, Jew, of, of who Jesus is. So here, back in Cana again, Cana in Galilee, we're seeing more of Jesus' glory. We're beginning to see the fulfillment of prophecies like that in Isaiah 35 and 53. 
Here's Isaiah 35. It's on the screen, verses 5 to 6. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. Or Isaiah 53, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. John wants us to see that the Messiah is Jesus, the one who would come and relieve this suffering, the one who would come and bear it all away. He's here. The one who promised to come is here. Will we see these signs and believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and have life in his name?